0: Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential, and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. We're really excited today to feature New Labor Forum Book Reviews editor, Samir Santi, in conversation with New Labor Forum consulting editor, Ruth Milkman. They discuss Milkman's important and timely new book, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat*. The book upends a widely held view that the decades-long increase in immigrant labor has put US workers in competition for scarce jobs and has brought about depressed wages and working conditions. Milkman argues that this line of thinking has got the sequencing wrong. Instead, immigrants have tended to fill jobs already badly degraded she argues thanks to deregulation and deunionization she speaks with samir santi about the particular industries in which this has played out as well as the dire political implications of failing to understand these dynamics
1: I'm really, really thrilled to be here today with Ruth Milkman, who is a giant, as both a scholar of the history and sociology of work, and, and also as a real, committed, longtime movement intellectual. Ruth is a past president of the American Sociological Association, and she's written extensively on the changing character of capital and labor within just about every industry you can think of, from the automotive, to agricultural, to domestic work, to the gig economy, hotels, building services, much more you know, it honestly takes a better part of an hour, the hour that we have here to run through her various accomplishments. So I'll, I'll leave it there. And just remind everyone that Ruth is the chair of labor studies at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies, where I'm very lucky to count her as a colleague and a mentor. Today, we're going to be talking about Ruth's really terrific new book, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat, published last year by Polity. Ruth, thanks so much for doing this. And before we get started, anything else you want to add by way of introduction?
2: Thank you for a great introduction, Samir, and I'm delighted that you're my colleague, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So to start, you know, I, I would begin by asking what led you to write this book. But in this case, I think the context is pretty clear. You conceptualized and wrote this when the Trump administration was weaponizing what you call the immigrant threat narrative. Basically, the idea that immigrants are coming into the U.S. and taking all the jobs because they're willing to work for less than workers born in this country. Now, most of us, I think, and most of the audience here understands that Trump's rhetoric on that was violently racist and xenophobic. But many decent people, I I, I suspect, including some nominally progressive writers, do accept the rather simplistic supply and demand argument, which holds that more people entering the country and competing for a fixed number of jobs will serve to undermine U.S. workers' bargaining power. In the book, you make a very, very clear and powerful argument against this view. So can you start by just laying out the central thesis of the book?
2: Sure. Let me preface it, though, by saying that this immigrant threat narrative, as I call it, predates the uh, the rise of Donald Trump and persists in his absence or whatever we call the current silence from the former president. So it's not, I mean, he definitely amplified it and made it much more central to the political conversation, but it's not gone and it's been around for quite a long time. So I just wanted to say that. And it also, the the, the narrative is not just that immigrants are a threat to so-called American jobs, but also a burden in terms of taxpayers' expenses for education and health and so on. And as you may recall, Trump famously asserted that immigrants bring crime with them. Actually, the opposite is true, but I mean, there's less evidence of criminal activity among immigrants than among US-born folks and so on. So, and as you said, there is a version of this on the left, which is more focused on the economic side as this idea that open borders, quote unquote, which some people on the left do advocate, but that's not really my position. In any case, there the claim is that open borders and therefore a larger labor supply you know, due to immigration is good for the bosses and not good for workers and their unions. So that view is around, basically what I try to argue in the book that the, is that the story is a little more complicated than supply and demand. the The key point in that regard is that immigrants rarely compete directly with U.S.-born workers. Their employment is concentrated in particular segments of the labor market, often growing segments, and also places that have undergone major restructuring and transformation to the point where what were once desirable, decent jobs with reasonable wages and sometimes even things like health insurance coverage and pensions were transformed by employers into undesirable, degraded jobs. And the process I try to trace historically in the book is that in many, many industries, when that transformation occurs, when unions are destroyed or weakened, when jobs are, when deregulation leads to changed conditions in the workplace and so on, U.S.-born workers often abandon jobs that were formerly desirable but now seem extremely unappealing. So those who have other options go for them. And that's when employers start actively hiring and recruiting immigrants. And it is true that some of those immigrants are already around when this occurs, but the supply is actually not adequate to meet the needs of employers in low wage jobs in the period in the neoliberal period. Basically, this is not true right now, given the pandemic and everything, but for several decades. And so then employers actually actively solicit immigrants to come across the border or not they're not all from. Mexico and Central America, but from wherever they recruit refugees, etc.
1: Yeah, no. And, and I mean, this is a really, a really important intervention. And so I just want to make sure that the listeners kind of have a handle on it. So so the, I mean, the point, Ruth, that you're outlining is that causality in terms of immigration moves in the opposite direction than the conventional argument asserts. So in other words, immigration didn't contribute to deteriorating quality of of jobs in in, various industries that we'll talk about, but rather that the deterioration in the quality of those jobs created demand among employers for immigrant workers who they believe they could control more easily, exploit more easily, and so on. At the same time, you do make it a point in the book to challenge the idea that this is simply a product of immigrants coming here to do jobs that Americans don't want. Specifically, you take the examples of residents construction, building services, meat packing, and trucking, to show that these that these used to be jobs that Americans did want, um, and once upon a time they were stable union jobs. Not all of them, but a lot, but large slices of those industries. Over the years, though, you say these jobs have been degraded, and that this degradation resulted in the as you say the exit of U.S. born workers, which in turn led employers to more actively recruit immigrant workers and, and others. So, can you talk? about how exactly this process played out and and why it affected the specific industries that you cover?
2: Let me give a couple of examples. So first of all, trucking, as I think most of the people in this listening audience probably are aware, trucking used to be a pretty highly unionized industry, especially long haul trucking, the Teamsters Union, that was its central constituency. And When the industry was deregulated in the late 70s, culminating in the Motor Carrier Act of 1980, it was transformed almost overnight. The union was dramatically weakened. Many of the jobs were converted from regular hourly jobs to owner-operator type jobs, and subcontracting became pervasive in the industry. And as that occurred, those who could either migrated into other sectors of trucking that remained unionized or just went into other kinds of fields and the, the, both the pay and the benefits deteriorated dramatically. And so increasingly, the sector where immigrants are most concentrated is actually in the trucking at, at the nation's ports on both coasts, this is the case. And those jobs were particularly badly affected by these changes. So that's one kind of case where deregulation is sort of the, the main motor of wage deterioration and so on and job deterioration. And those jobs, by the way, become... What were once hourly jobs become, in the case of the ports, people are paid by the truckload and they're not paid at all for the time they spend hanging around waiting for a job, which is often many hours in between. And, and because they're theoretically self-employed, independent contractors, there are no benefits. They're not protected by any of the labor and employment laws that employees are covered by, similar to Uber drivers, for example. So that's one kind of case in things like, well, residential construction is another interesting one. So there again, that's an industry that people now just assume is a low wage immigrant dominated industry, but not that long ago, half a century ago in the West and in the North and in the Midwest, it was highly unionized and the workers were mostly white men. They're now men of color, mostly Latinx, but other other entities too. There, it's a little different because the there is an opportunity when the residential construction sector became non-union, which happened very rapidly in the 80s and 90s, 1980s and 90s, that is, the... Many workers who had been employed there just moved into commercial construction, which in many periods during that time was booming, so it was easy to do that. The construction employers went on the rampage against unions in a very deliberate way. This has been, I mean, I refer to it in the book, but it's been documented extensively by others, especially for anyone interested in a book by Mark Linder called Wars of Attrition is probably the best single thing to read about that. But so that began quite early actually in the late 1960s and was very successful. And it focused mainly on the residential sector. Commercial construction remains a, a sector where unions have a strong presence, though less extensive than in the past. So the unions didn't really fight back very seriously against the loss of residential construction. This mostly occurs in period of periods of economic downturns, whereas we saw most dramatically in in the Great Recession, construction in that sector particularly basically stops dead. And the question is, when it comes back, will it come back in the form of union or non-union contracting? And so the unions pretty much abandon that territory, and those who worked in it before, many of them move into commercial construction, which is the same organizations and relatively straightforward matter for during periods of boom, like The 80s, most importantly, was there are great building booms in a lot of major cities. And that's when the industry is completely transformed into one dominated by immigrants. Construction always was an industry with lots of layers of subcontracting. That's nothing new. But what changes now is that at the lower, at the bottom level, very much like in agriculture, immigrant middle people, well, they are all men, pretty much middlemen, who are bilingual and have both access to communities where they can recruit workers and are in contact with the contractors, they become the kind of key nodes of immigrant recruitment, sometimes in among immigrants who are already present in the U.S., but often through networks that take them south of the border. So that really takes off in the 80s and 90s, and the industry becomes, you know, transformed overnight. One interesting tidbit on that, which is also true in some other cases like meatpacking, which maybe I'll say something about in a minute. The employers at first are a little skeptical about this. It takes them a while. They do eventually come to the view, which you've heard probably recently, that, oh, immigrants are much better workers than U.S. born workers. They eventually get there. But in the beginning, they're kind of skeptical. You know, these folks don't speak English. You know, what are they going to be like? There's a sort of anxiety in the in the early stages, which I think is important because it shows that, this was not really planned by employers. It's not like they set about figuring out, well, let's get rid of the U.S. born workers and hire immigrants instead. That it wasn't really like that. It's kind of a step by step progression, and eventually they get to the point where that's who they're recruiting. So it's more that they, you know, they are unable to attract U.S. born workers at the newly degraded wages and um, working conditions that emerge. Anyway, so in, in that happens in construction and in meat packing, which is different in that it's it's really formal employment, unlike construction, where there's a lot of all cash payment and all sorts of other so-called informal labor market practices that kind of take hold as the industry is transformed. You know, in meatpacking, as we've seen during the pandemic, it's, these are just, they're basically like factories that, you know, people get checks for their pay and compensation and so on. And, and there, the restructuring is tied to a broader change in the industry where, slaughterhouses that used to be located in urban areas moved to where the cattle are bred, which happened to be right to work states like Iowa and Nebraska and so on. And that, I mean, they're glad to, you know, weaken the union or get rid of it completely in those cases. But again, and that's not really the main objective. It's sort of an efficiency move that it's cheaper to do the, you know, go to where they call it final feeding takes place. And, but what that means is that they need to recruit workers from those new geographical regions. And they think in the beginning that they can do that by recruiting women, for example, who are in farming areas and are not fully employed, other, you know, young people in those areas who might not, uh, who need jobs. One of the things that fascinated me was coming across a case where they actually, in one meatpacking plant, they actually built a daycare center in the hope that you know, women who had kids who would be attracted to the job. And what they found is that they initially do employ US born workers of you know, not just women, but in general, and the turnover rates are sky high, sometimes like three and 400%. People are willing to try these jobs, but then they see how awful they are. And I think most people who are listening to this probably are familiar with from all the publicity that there's been about this industry recently. This is not a fun job, Although for immigrants, it's often a better option than some of the existing alternatives. And I should have said this before, the, the study that this book is about low wage immigrants. I'm not talking about Silicon Valley engineers and all. I mean, that's definitely worthy of study, but that's not what this is about. But so if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of formal education, maybe doesn't speak English and so on, this is actually better than a lot of the alternatives, say agriculture or cleaning houses or whatever. But so they do attract immigrants and refugees, but. But again, initially they try to use US born workers. That's the goal of the employers. And and once that fails, once they see that people just aren't willing to put up with the work the way it's currently structured or the way it was structured in in this period of transition, they increasingly turn to immigrants. So that's just another variation. So they're all a little bit different, but the basic pattern is, is the same across all these cases.
1: I think it's really important that you know that this wasn't some like grand design by employers, but was wound up with broader political economic shifts over the last few decades uh, that have sort of created the conditions within which employer demand for, for sort of highly, you know, what they see as exploitable immigrant labor has increased. And, and you know, this has wound up, and we, we can, we'll talk about this a little bit in a bit, but with, with sort of the decline of the New Deal regulatory order, and with the increasing levels of inequality and 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 larger structural trends over the past few decades. And and you also have, you know, in the book, you talked about how all of this also affected immigrant women workers in specific ways. And in particular, you highlight domestic work and low wage service industries like restaurants and nail salons. And and here, again, like you say, that I mean, in each of these places and, and sectors, the dynamics are a little bit different, but they're all sort of r- related in ways. So could you talk a little bit about, about the sort of gender component of, of this in, in some of these other, other sectors?
2: Yeah. So the story, it's parallel, but there's a little different twist in the case of these female-dominated fields. The one I know the most about is paid domestic work, maids, nannies, and so on. There, these jobs, as everyone I think listening probably is well aware, were once dominated by African-American women until the 1970s or so. That was the case. And actually, the, those jobs were declining in importance. That is, in you know, how many people were doing that kind of work in that period, because in the New Deal period, when the period of the so-called great compression and income inequality, it not as many people relied on paid domestic work or they did it more of it themselves back then. In fact, there were sociologists who wrote obituaries for the occupation in the 1960s and 70s saying this was a declining you know, industry that was going to go the way of elevator operators or something. Well, that obviously didn't happen. Instead, what happened was two things. One was that the civil rights movement successfully opened up other employment opportunities for Black women in this period, in the starting basically in the 70s. And there's this massive exodus from domestic service jobs for all kinds of reasons. I mean, they were unlike in... Say trucking or construction; these were never good jobs. They were not unionized. They didn't pay very much, et cetera. They were always degraded. So that's one big difference from the male-dominated sectors we just talked about. And also, for many African Americans, there was a kind they they sort of stank of the legacy of slavery in many cases, since there was a kind of straight line from that to domestic service for, historically. Anyway, once other opportunities opened up, which did happen in the nineteen seventies, where black women got access to clerical and service jobs, sales jobs in some cases, a lot of public sector employment opened up. So they just abandoned this whole territory. And meanwhile, something else is going on, which is as inequality starts to expand in the neoliberal years, more and more people can afford domestic labor. You know, this is a kind of whole other topic. But so I once studied this a little bit in other countries. And if you look at, say, Scandinavia, where Income inequality in those days was very flat, that there was very little inequality. Hardly anyone employed domestic servants. That's begun to change there even too, but in in recent years. But so in order to, if you just think about it logically, if you wanna employ a whole other person to take care of your household, especially if it's a full-time housekeeper or nanny or something, if income inequality is compressed, you can't really afford that. You have to pay them what you earn. But as inequality grows, it becomes more and more affordable. So there's that. There's other factors too, like the aging of the population, more and more mothers in the paid labor force who need childcare, and so on. So for a lot of different reasons, there's an expansion of demand at the same time as the supply of workers in domestic service basically evaporates. And so that it becomes, you know, now I think we all think of it as an immigrant-dominated occupation, but that wasn't true half a century ago. So that so it's parallel to what happens in the male-dominated sectors, but with a different motor of change.
1: Moving maybe more to the, the, I suppose, the political side of this, it's notable, I think, um, and, and I think many of our sort of listeners are, will be familiar with some of this, that, that that, many of the most exciting and successful struggles within the labor movement in recent decades have been led by immigrant workers and, and immigrant women, in particular employed in, you know, service occupations like hospitality, office cleaning, domestic work, and so on. And, and some of this activity, and, and this is, I think, an, a, an interesting thing that it's just like kind of, this question has a couple of layers, but I think it's worth just spending some time on and unpacking. Some of this activity has occurred within traditional labor unions, like, like SCIU, Unite Here, prior to the merger, HERE, Hotel Workers Service Employees. And a lot of it's also occurred through newer organizations, like, like the National Domestic Workers Alliance, for instance, workers centers around the country, um, all labor uh, groups and so on. So I guess first, I mean, I'm wondering if you can talk about why you think this is why have immigrant workers been at the forefront of some of the most dynamic struggles over the last few decades. And and related to that, if you could share your perspective, which is an important and unique one, I think, on on why this particular set of organizations has been involved and just for our listeners to kind of provide some context. You know, SEIU, for instance, and Unite Here, or H-E-R-E, have histories going quite a ways back to the American Federation of Labor, an organization typically associated as being white male craft workers. And historically, that's not an inaccurate description. Organizations like National Domestic Workers Alliance are much newer, having been formed in the last couple of decades. And and what's absent from this list are the famous CIO unions, um, the ones that led the great wave of labor militancy in in the 1930s. So, I mean, why is is all of this the, the way it is?
2: So the iconic case of all this is justice for janitors, which I imagine most people listening have had some familiarity with, which in the beginning people are deeply skeptical that I was too actually when this first emerged. And then it's a spectacular success and organizers begin to figure out that actually immigrants are quite eager to organize, given the opportunity. And some of the same motives that lead to immigration itself, desire to advance economically, make um, unionization very appealing. And it's not that the fear is absent, but it's for people who are undocumented and have done things like cross the border illegally organizing is not as threatening as some of the other experiences they've been through, it turns out. So yeah, there's some fear and there's probably much more more recently, but in the period where all this is happening in the eighties and nineties, it's not a big deal compared to what they've been through before. And I remember one interview that we did a long time ago in LA where somebody involved in justice for janitories said, well, in my country, if you organize a union, they murder you here, you lose a minimum wage job, like no big deal. Right. I mean, so Anyway, so pretty soon organizers are saying, oh, organizing immigrants, you know, that's much easier than organizing US born workers. And then, as for the worker centers like the domestic workers and, and the others, that's quite different. They aren't conventional unions, but they focus on industries and occupations where unions are basically either absent or have disappeared. And it turns out that they, although they're very typically quite modest organizations in both size and resources, are much more able to strategize in innovative ways about how to name and shame employers, draw attention to the terrible conditions that these workers face. And they are focused on the low wage sectors of the economy, which is where immigrants are. So they become the champions of immigrant workers and are quite successful in, well, not organizing them into unions in most cases, although some try to do that, but more often in um, trying to Get new laws to improve conditions and create new arenas of struggle for more rights and so on.
1: Zooming out a little bit. And you know, we've been talking a lot about the relationship between economic restructuring within the US and, and immigration. And I, I wonder if we can close by discussing the role of US empire in all of this. You know, many people immigrating to the US from Latin America, in particular Central America are coming from states that have been destabilized as a result of US military intervention or CIA intervention and the like. And so I guess maybe and to sort of use this to think in terms of what the what is to be done question and maybe in terms of thinking about the big the big question for us, which is, you know, how do we imagine building a transnational working class coalition that can fight for a just immigration policy? To what extent do you think US foreign policy needs to be a target?
2: It definitely should be part of the mix. And I think it's most obvious in the case of what's happening right now in, in places like Honduras and the rest of Central America, where the so-called crisis or surge at the border of refugees, and they're not really immigrants in the way I describe in the book, they're, they really are refugees, many of them young children who are fleeing violence and corruption and devastation in their home countries. But, but so that's where it's really stark. But I think you could, it's clear that U.S. foreign policy has contributed to the so-called push factors motivating immigrants to come to the U.S. What I write about is much more the pull factors, like the, the, the knowledge that in, in the late 20th and early 21st century, at least up to the Great Recession, if you do manage to get here, there's a job waiting for you. Employers want you to come, and people know that. I think that the refugee story is a little different. But in both cases, the lack of opportunity at home is often tied to the policies of the U.S. and other wealthy countries. NAFTA might be one
0: example.
1: Mm. You know, thanks, everyone, for for joining us is really, I think, rich discussion. And Ruth, thank you so much. I encourage everyone to go out and pick up uh, a copy of <laughs> this wonderful book. It really, it, I mean, I, you know, one of the things I was going to say about Ruth at the outset is she manages to find topics that you think you understand pretty well and then um, shine a light on them that you're like, oh, wait, now I'm going to think about this differently going forward. So this is, a, a you know, Immigrant Labor, The New precariat, Out by Polity. Highly recommend um, everyone taking a look. It's also very succinct and, and a quick and easy read, too. So thank glad you, to Ruth. hear that. Thank yeah.
2: you, Samir.
0: Engagement, with issues like these forms the basis of the classroom experience at the school of labor and urban studies where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities for more information about the school visit slu.cuny.edu to learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.